It's a fact. When unemployment rate is high, the first people to be hit are women and children. Whether it's in a developing nation or here in the United States, women and children are the first ones affected by any type of unemployment. I have talked about this before, but when a woman is provided a job in a developing nation, she invests about 80 to 90% of her income back into her community. When a man in a developing nation is provided a job, he only invests about 30 to 40% of his income back into his community. The fact is, giving a woman a job changes lives. Welcome to Business with Purpose. I'm your host, Molly Stillman of stillbeingmolly.com, and this show is all about bringing you the stories behind the brands, companies, and small businesses that are changing the world. Each week, I interview an entrepreneur, a CEO, nonprofit director, community leader, or just an all-around amazing person who's trying to make a positive impact, not only through their personal life, but also with their professional career. My goal is to show you that no matter what you do for a living, you can make an impact right where you are. My guest this week is Barrett Ward, the founder and CEO of ABLE. Able is an incredible fashion and accessory company that I've been a fan of for years. And to finally hear the origin story behind this company I love so much was such a joy for me. Able is paving the way for other purpose-filled brands to step up their game and continue to impact lives in incredible ways. I also wanted to let you know that the team at Able was so generous to give you an exclusive coupon code for 20% off your purchase from Able by using the code MOLLY. Go to stillbeingmolly.com slash Able, A-B-L-E, to shop. This was a really fun conversation, and I just loved my time with Barrett. So without further ado, on to my chat with Barrett. Hey, Barrett. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. I How am, are you? I'm, I'm good, and I am so excited to be interviewing you today. I mentioned this briefly before we started recording, but you really have been on my list, my goal list of people to interview. When I first launched uh, this podcast, I kind of made that list of like, here's 50 people I would dream to interview, and you were on that list, and I am just honored to have you on the show today. Well, that means a lot. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure to do this. Thank and you for the opportunity. So how is Nashville? It's one of my favorite places in the entire United States. And I just love that you guys are based there. Yeah, we, we I love it here. My, I have, I'm married to Rachel and, and have four daughters. And this is definitely home. We, um, it's, we always say that it's either Nashville, San Diego, or Addis Ababa, Ethiopia that we're going to live in. But Nashville's a great town. It's, um, did you know that it's, I think it's the number one bachelorette destination in the country right now? Really? Well. Yeah. Hey. So, so come on. I know. Single guys listening to the show, head to Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> We're here. I mean, it is funny. You can't walk down the street with seeing without seeing... Um, 10 girls wearing the same t-shirt on every corner block. Oh, yeah. And like little tutus and uh, (laughs) and the bride has a big sash. And I remember when this is completely off topic, but I remember when um, before I got married and my my friends wanted to throw me a bachelorette party. I was like, I absolutely will not wear matching shirts. I will not uh, use anything that is... um, uh, inappropriate, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah. And oh, I will I not. I will not wear a crown. I will well, not. We made, <laughs> yeah, we made the mistake of doing an Airbnb at our house um, and having a bachelorette party come. Oh no! And besides the many things that were, and this will be definitely your TMI for the day. Um, but the, despite all the things that were um, destroyed in our house. The magical moment that made everything better was when my two-year-old walked out oh, no. of the toy room, putting on a pair of glasses, 
where coming off the glasses was one of those inappropriate figures. Oh, um, no. And we, we lost it. Oh. Never had another bachelorette party at our house. But, yeah, um, I'd say that that would be your your one and done. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, so I want to. I really want to dive in because I, like I said, I have been a fan of yours and um, Abel's since the beginning. Really, I mean, I was a huge supporter of you guys back when all you sold was gorgeous scarves. And yeah. I, um, I mean, I still have my original fashion able scarf. And oh, I love it. so I have just truly loved seeing the evolution of the brand and seeing just how far you guys have come and how much impact you have made. So Without further ado, let's dive right in, and I want you to give me what all my guests do, and that is the Barrett 101, and just tell us your story and you know where you're from and, and how you got to where you are today and, and how Abel became Abel. Well, that's a big question. <laughs> um, so, well, you know, um, I grew up in Carmel, Indiana mostly, um, and that's on the north side of Indianapolis, and I went to Indiana University, and... While I was there, I was completely unfocused, had no idea what I was doing, and landed on a major of Japanese language and literature, um, <laughs> which I use sometimes on elevators when I meet someone from Japan. And that's yeah, I was going to say, like, how do you use that today? <laughs> you know, the funny thing is, is when you get, I mean, I'm 46 now, so um, when you get to look back at your story, it is funny to see those moments that you kind of think are irrelevant. But the reality is that that professor that talked to me about just taking something that I enjoyed, um, that really resonated with me. And it, and it ended up with me living in Japan, my senior year in college. And it's very easy to see how that now ties to where I'm at with Abel as far as, you know, starting to develop some international lifestyle muscles. Yeah. And, um, cause you know how hard it is. I mean, I remember, mm -hmm. To date, to date myself, I remember standing there in Ethiopia, or in uh, in Japan, in my senior year in college, in the first three months, um, you know, crying my eyes out while singing to tears and tears for fears. Shout, shout, <laughs> let it all out. That's and, amazing. Um, you know, and and that's the beginning of of the uh, overseas trauma that you start out with, and then culturally adjust and learn to love, you know, by the end of it, I never wanted to leave. So, um, so yeah, that, that actually is something I'm able to tie to today, uh, that major mainly from an experiential level. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then after that, I sold books door to door with the Southwestern company right out of college. Yeah. Um, and that was a company based out of Nashville, Tennessee. And, um, and I, and, and it was a super hard job. But I learned a ton about myself. Did you ever know anybody that did that in college? I do. I do. Yeah. So it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. But it was it was definitely I was definitely a cream puff kid <laughs> at that point in my life. And I think it grew it grew me up fast. And, yeah. Um, that was the next muscle that was developed. So let's go with the muscle theme today. I like it. Um, and then uh, after, you know, after that stint, I was living in um I was living in Nashville and loving it, and I actually was going to church for the first time in my life. I started going to a church because I met this girl that I thought was really cute. <laughs> and Isn't that um, always how it happens? <laughs> isn't that how it happens? That's what, quote unquote, called me to church. Yeah. 
Um, and so, and while there, I kind of got involved with going on a trip to like a service trip to Peru. Yeah. And that was the first time that I had ever seen poverty in my life. Yeah. And as shallow as it sounds, that, that is definitely how far off into the land of, um, you know, selfishness that I was that it really took like being there and seeing it and being able to empathize with it for me to have a moment in my life where I thought, Oh gosh, I probably need to respond to this. Yeah. You know, because, because I, uh, you know, as the story goes right before that I had bought my, my dream car and thought that I had reached the pinnacle of my life. And then all of a sudden found out my dream car could buy about 300, um, prefabricata casas for people, these mm. little sheds that they live in. And I was like, Oh man, this isn't right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so no, that was a, that was a, you know, I look back at that moment fondly now as a seminal moment that sent me on the next eight months of quitting my job immediately and, and looking for the next adventure. The next adventure led me to Ethiopia. Um, I, I went to Ethiopia at the beginning of my 30s with an organization here in Nashville, Tennessee called the Mocha Club. I and love Mocha Club. I have yeah. been, oh my goodness. I had no idea that that's how you got involved because I was always wondering, like, what took him to Ethiopia? And I did not know it was the Mocha Club. That's amazing. I've been following them for years as well. So that is really cool to know that. Well, yeah, and the the super big detail on it is if the the real detail on it is is that I went with an organization, um, and then I I actually started the Mocha Club, and then the Mocha Club became the brand for that entire organization. So that's um, awesome. Yeah, Mocha Club was fun. It was a great way to, and it's still a great way to plug into Africa and have an impact without. Um, overextending yourself, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a way to get engaged in yeah. a way that if you still care and want to be involved, you can, and don't have to feel like you got to give up everything else in your life to do it, you yeah. know? Um, yeah. so anyways, that, that was, um, my first trip to Africa. And when I got there, it really felt like, man, this is where I'm supposed to be. So I moved to Ethiopia for a couple months, traveled the continent, went to South Africa and Zambia and Zimbabwe and Kenya And, you know, that started the next phase of my life, which was getting involved with the poor and working in that nonprofit space. Um, And then, you know, a few years later, I met Rachel and Rachel is involved in the adoption space. And right when we got married in 2007, she got a job offer to move to Ethiopia and I was like, golly, does that seem wise at the beginning of our marriage to do something like that? And Rachel's super brave and, uh, she kept saying, let's do it, let's do it, let's do it. And we kept talking about it and praying about it until we got to a place where we felt really comfortable that that that's what we were supposed to do. And so then we moved to Ethiopia and we lived there for a year and a half, spent the first three weeks crying again. I'm sure. I don't think it was tears for fears this time. (laughs) Um, what was that like moving to Ethiopia and also being a newlywed? Yeah, well, the the real mistake was moving into an orphanage with thirty with thirty other kids as a newlywed. Oh wow, um, we regret that choice. <laughs> um, we we ended up several months later moving out to our own place and seeing that as a necessity. But yeah, you know, at, at first, what felt so hard about Ethiopia was that 
you know, first of all, it, it's it's a very developed city, Addis Ababa. Yeah. I mean, there's a movie theater there. There's tons of stuff to do. It's a beautiful city. Um, but it was just so unfamiliar, and, and it's a slower pace of life. I mean, and For the sure. reality is, is most – I think every country in the world is a slower pace of life than, than you sure. know, than the U.S. But, um, but you know, it was – it was kind of adjusting to having to go to five different tiny little grocery stores to get everything you needed as opposed to going, you know, to Kroger to get everything in one stop shop. Yeah. And those inefficiencies that feel that, that call on my demandingness to be impatient eventually became the things that we loved about it. You Mm. know, I mean, um, we had such a great group of friends. I mean, we would get, we talk about the fact that we would get together on Sunday morning with our friends and hang out all morning long, make breakfast together. And then about 90% of us would, you know, like a group of 20 of us would go to lunch together with our kids. And then after lunch, about half of us stayed together for dinner. Yeah. And, and it's because there's no, you know, to quote old school, there's no, there's no home Depot run or no bed, bath and beyond run to make that day, you know? Yeah. Um, so you just end up being with people. And so that's, that's what we loved about living there. So we loved Ethiopia. That's awesome. So you guys were there, you're there for a year and a half. You, you, you move out of the orphanage. Uh, what were you doing during this time? I know Rachel had gotten a job there. Did you go there with the intention of working or did you just kind of say, I'm going to tag along and we're going to figure it out? Yeah. Well, I, I continued my work with Mocha Club at that point. Okay. So I was able to work with vulnerable women and children while I was there. And, you know, the thing that I had never seen before up close and personal was the commercial sex industry. Yeah. And even forced um, slavery and um, the impact of that. And, you know, this is a this is a poverty issue. It was a poverty issue as a woman's issue. It, you know, when, when, when unemployment hits at that level in a city, the first people that are going to get hit are women and children. So, so, you know, we would see these girls, young women waving at us on the street and trying to solicit us. And, uh, at first I just thought they were being friendly. And then when I came to found out what was happening, I, I got mad and wanted to be involved with it and do something about it. And so, you know, with Mocha Club, we started working with an organization that, uh, rehabilitated women coming out of the commercial sex industry. Mm. And, you know, that would be everything from counseling, providing health care. I mean, 75% of the women were HIV positive. So providing child, child care, group therapy, all those kind of things that you go through in rehabilitation. And, you know, it was so good for me. It was so healthy because I, you know, I think I still probably continue to have to chip away at at the, um, unintended subconscious conclusions that I have that I've earned what I've gotten in my life. Yeah. Um, and that I've gotten where I've gotten because of, of, you know, I'm pretty talented guy. I mean, Hey, you know, um, (laughs) no big deal. You own a lot of books that smell like mahogany, you know, things like that. (laughs) That's right. Rich, rich, rich mahogany. (laughs) Um, and you know, I, I think back to that time and meeting women that, so clearly we're in what they were in because there was no other opportunity. And, yeah. you know, meeting women, one woman told us that she had overcome prostitution and, and, and got into it. But the reason she had gone into it was because her sister was dying from breast cancer. And so 
she was the only way for her to make money to do something about it. Yeah. And so you hear those kind of stories and you realize, oh, man, this this is not only people that are not making bad choices. It's people making heroic choices. And Mm. so so in that time period, hearing from them saying, look, we appreciate this this nonprofit work that you're doing. It's genuinely important. But at the end of the day, at the end of this, if we don't have a job, we're going right back to what we were doing before. So what are you going to do about that? Yeah. N- uh, nice guy over here. Yeah. And and it was a real that was kind of seminal moment. Number two for me is realizing that, you know, while nonprofit work is critical, I mean, there are people in the world that are destitute and need help. Too often I've, I've come to realize people on the economic solution side are lacking. Yeah. There's not there's not enough people trying to figure out how to engage those countries in the in the world GDP, you know, yeah. the world economy. So that became the next real effort for us is is just talking to these women, what would you do? What what would you uh want to do if you had a job? And the only reason we sold scarves is cuz they said that's what we want to do. We want to weave scarves. Oh, that's I mean, awesome. if they would have said you know, we want to make uh chairs, hopefully we'd be the best darn chair company in the world today, but um <laughs> We got into it because they said they, they know how to make scarves and they wanted to learn how to do it. So yeah. that's where we began. So when you were first presented with this and you were really sitting down speaking with these women and listening to them and talking with them and they expressed this interest to make scarves, what were you as a white American man, you know, how did you handle like okay, do I start a fashion company? Like, you know, it just is almost like a fish out of water scenario because, you know, but there you are and you're, but you're, like you said, you're a smart guy, you're capable and you... I didn't say I was a smart guy. That's not true. Um, I just want to rescind that comment. um, Very average man. uh, But, you know, like what, what did you do in that moment where, you know, here are these women that are standing in front of you saying, this is what we want to do. We just need an opportunity what were your sort of next steps? You know, did you just kind of go back to your wife, Rachel, and say, hey, so should we start this fashion company or, or where did you yeah, kind of go from there? Um, you know, uh, it's it's I mean, first of all, the other uh, deficiency I have is I know nothing about fashion. I'm completely <laughs> unfashionable. And so, you know, I mean, if I really think back to it, I did talk to Rachel about it and we. And, and and I've never really sat down and thought to myself, I've got this idea. I've got a vision for it. Let's build that vision. Here's the five-year plan. Go. Yeah. Um, I mean, I didn't even know what a business plan was when I started, you know, fashionable. Um, but but each thing that I've gotten gotten involved in was really just seeing a moment and someone probably needing help or suffering and saying, what can we do about it? And, you know, it was, it was them telling us scarves and we started looking at that, the weaving space in Ethiopia and found out that that's been around since the queen of Sheba, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's a super indigenous product for them that they had giftings in. And then, um, and then Rachel and I were at a market one day and she was picking out these scarves and I said, hold on, are these cute? Or are you just getting them because they're gifts for friends back home? And she said, no, they're really cute. And so we realized there was a, there was a, there was a capability there to produce something that the, that the West could, as well as local purchasers could get excited about. Yeah. So, um, it was nothing more than, you know, 
that than than just them starting to weave scarves and us taking a few pictures and putting on a website. Wow. I mean, there was Minka Kelly was actually a big influence. Mm. Um, at that point, she was involved in a TV show called Friday Night Lights, and yeah, she um, and she put her voice to it, and I think that also had a big amplifying moment that got us put on the on on the landscape of a, a luckily of a lot of consumers like you. I know you are loving this conversation with Barrett, and I wanted to take a moment to thank our sponsor of the show who's able to make this show possible, and that's Cosbox. As you know, Cosbox is my favorite ethical subscription box, and I've been a subscriber for over two and a half years. How it works is each season, a new box is filled with everything from accessories and home goods and jewelry to the best in skincare and wellness products that are not only amazing, but they are doing the most good. Now, the products are not just beautiful, they're also useful. The summer box just sold out. It sold out so fast, but do not fret because there is an exclusive special edition box that is available right now that contains the best products from the spring and summer cause box. It's amazing and it's also about to sell out. So you better hurry to reserve your special edition cause box. Go to stillbeingmolly.com slash cause box and use the coupon code Molly for $15 off. Now back to my conversation with Barrett. You guys officially started pretty much in 2010, correct? It was October 25th of 2010. Yeah. Yep. And so you, you got that first batch of scarves and you you were, like a, like I said you earlier, and, and you've kind of mentioned, it was originally called Fashionable. And then it's obviously grown a lot from, from there. And so can you kind of talk a little bit about the evolution from those first days where you're just selling scarves, um, but you're really growing pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, what, what, what eventually caused you guys to change the name from fashionable to just able? And now you guys are also working with women there in Nashville. You're working in other countries. And I, I believe you're also in Peru. Um, so how did that kind of all expand? Yeah, it's really, you know, it's it, it, it it's mission driven. And all the new products we've added are really are, are born out of this mission-driven concept of, of, you know, not only how do we engage women that are making the products, but how do we engage our consumer in a positive way? Yeah. And, um, and that's been a fun journey. You know, we, we want to be a safe place for women and everything that we post. And, you know, I don't, I, I don't think we do it perfectly, but I think we're, we're trying to be perfectly transparent and, yeah. and, and how we do it. And so, I love having people like your viewers give uh, and listeners give feedback to what we're doing all the time. So yeah. that's, I would just say that number one, Yeah, um, it's a constantly evolving and learning process. And most of our best ideas come from our customers and not internally. Um, you know, one of the things that early on happened is after we started with scarves is leather became an opportunity. Yeah. And, and as we were, and as, and leather is big in Ethiopia and as we were growing, you know, it's not like we had the thought that we could ever continue to the, the thought wasn't we can continue to work with women coming out of prostitution forever. I mean, if that was the goal, then we wouldn't be able to expand our impact. So the question was, what's the mission? What's the real mission here? Yeah. And we really early on defined the mission as creating jobs for women who have overcome. And so whether that's, you know, addiction or just simply poverty or prostitution, that's kind of been the pathway that we've been developing our, our mission on. And so I love that. we continue to work and make, and, and you know, the, I'll say this too, 
working with women started out as a heart issue for me. Yeah. But the more and more you study it and understand it, it is absolutely the most intelligent strategy for combating poverty. Preach. It, it, it is. It is a. But it's a proven statistic. Yep. I don't even have to preach. Like if I was to preach, I'd have to get all like. <laughs> Emotional, but I could be just really factual and say yeah. the reality is, is it is socially scientifically proven that when you create a job for a woman, that she has a far greater impact on that community than than does a man. Yeah, there's actually and, this is a statistic I share all the time on this show. My listeners are like, oh, no, not again. Uh, but really, I mean, the statistic, at least the, the most recent one that I saw was that if you give a man a job in a developing nation, he invests about 30 to 40% of his income back into the community, whereas a woman invests about 90% of her income back into the community, Right, which is just, I mean, it's just staggering the difference and the impact that it makes. And yeah, so I, I'm the same way. Like I get, I get so passionate about this topic. So I love that you, you just talk about, I mean, especially just the fact behind it is that this is this is the way we change the world. I mean, and, and that there's that Beyonce song, Who Run the World? Girls. Like, I mean, it's true. Like, <laughs> they really yeah, do. Well, and I love it. And Yeah. And, you know, you don't have to come to our offices in Nashville, Tennessee to see any further. I mean, we, we have in our <laughs> offices in Nashville, we have 60 employees and 58 of them are, are women. Um, That's awesome. You know, I am one of two dudes. So um, <laughs> you are <and> outnumbered. <laughs> I'm wildly useless. Um, but, you know, it, it, yeah. And, and those statistics aren't hard to measure up either. And even though those are developing world statistics, it's not hard for me to see that that's even the reality of my own life. Like yeah. I watch my, my, my own wife's leanings towards investing in our families. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I think I'm a pretty good dad. I, I do. Um, and I, I lift up the strength of uh, the, the deep empathy of my wife and her and her her willingness to do whatever it takes for our children, you know. Yeah. So. Um, so anyways, yeah, I'm, I'm that is our strategy. And, and, and that strategy for combating poverty continues to evolve. I mean, we did when we were living in Nashville and we moved back here, I think we really started missing working with the women. Yeah. Um, you know, we felt like we were just running a fashion company here in Nashville. And so we started looking to get involved with working with women here that have overcome those same circumstances. So, yeah. you know, there's a nonprofit in town called the Magdalene House that works with women coming out of prostitution mm-hmm. or the Hope Center that works with women coming out of addiction or, you know, again, just working with women that have come out of difficult circumstances. They're all that's all that's all how our jewelry is made. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, so that's been a real shot in the arm for our company is just the is just the 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 culture that it develops in our offices. It's just we're very committed to what we do because it's all very present to us and very near to us. Um, So, yeah, we started we, we moved to doing that in Nashville and then kind of the last phase of our mission is, you know, where we kind of see ourselves now and what's coming and, and, and hopefully by the time this airs, we've already launched it, which is coming up pretty soon. Um, but we are, so, so, you know, when I, when I think about social enterprises, um, I do want to preach about this. Can I preach yeah. about social enterprise? Please, for a please do. Would you say preach? Oh yeah. I mean, say preach, preach. Oh, sorry. Okay. Preach. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, to, um, well, yeah, preach. So social enterprise to me is, you know, has become a bit watered down and, 
Mm. And, you know, the, re- the the good thing is, is there's a lot of social enterprise out there. And that's a good thing because, you know, if someone says there's a lot of social enterprise out there, well, I'd say, well, great. There's a lot more companies that have no social impact, mm-hmm. you know, or no, well, they have, or a negative one. Um, and but but in the other side of the coin, I do think if we claim to be social enterprise, we have to do a better job of being responsible to proving the impact that we're having. Yeah. And, um you know, I, I look at the difference between some companies have like giving models born out of their social enterprise. And this is the part where I would get a little bit preachy and certainly people could disagree with me, too. But I think that, um, you know, giving something away as a part of your business model is not corporate social or is not social enterprise. It's corporate social responsibility. Yeah. So there's a term called corporate social responsibility For or sure. CSR. And plenty of companies give a lot of money away. They give things away. That's companies like Target. They give millions of dollars away. Yeah. Um, and that's extraordinary. And they see that as an important part of their corporate social responsibility. Uh, but 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 a social impact business or a social enterprise should have baked into its model that it's curing a societal ill, whether it's environmental or whether it's with women or et cetera. Yeah. And so that that's number one. That's what we're really fighting for is to is is to make sure that we stay on track to that. And then number two, when it comes to social enterprise and measuring that work, you know, a couple of years ago, we started looking towards tons of different, you know, audits that we could do on our factories and to really, really measure and make sure that we were confident that the that our deliverables now that we were growing so much. Yeah, that, that it was harder to monitor you yeah. know, what we were doing. So we had to figure out a way to audit us or ourselves. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, I don't want to be standing in front of St. St. Peter and him being like, man, you sold a ton of bags, but why didn't you ever invest in figuring out the kind of impact you were having as much as your marketing? Yeah. You know, that, that keeps me up at night. And so a couple of years ago, we've, we've been developing a system for a long time now called Accountable that we've recently launched and done audits on all our factories with. And I'll tell you something, man, we found some things that we weren't excited about. Mm. Um, and we found some, even a, a manufacturer that was very oppressive in how they manage their women. And so, you know, there's the good, the bad and the ugly. But the the, the thing that I don't want to get involved in the game of is I don't want to be involved in the game of trying to make people feel like we're perfect mm. um, because that's just foolishness. It's obviously untrue. I don't want to throw out PR spins for everything that goes wrong. I want to be, look, here's the warts and all. What do you think? How do we do this better? Yeah. Get involved. Help us figure this out. Um, and with that, we've really partnered with those manufacturers after the audits to help them move the ball down the road. And and the biggest ball that we're trying to move the 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 down the road is – is helping every single factory get all of their employees to a living wage. Yeah. And, you know, living wage is yet another term that's kind of become a little bit watered down. Yeah, for or sure. Or fair wage. Um, people say, yeah, we pay a pretty fair wage. But the reality is there's a real, there's, there's a measurement for that. And that is that to make sure people can meet their basic necessities. Yeah. Because the reality is, is I don't know of one big brand in the world where every single employee is making a living wage. And if they, if it's out there, bring it to the table. Cause it's, 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 we still have to be honest about the fact that the, the people that make our products that we get to enjoy on a daily basis, 
um, around the world, usually those people making it can't meet their basic necessities. Yeah. And that's upside down. We got to do better than that. So, I mean, even in the last year, we've seen four of our five Ethiopian manufacturers move everybody to a living wage with our partnership. Oh, it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing, right? And and the impact is real and deep. Um, In Nashville, we're well above a living wage, um, about 20% above a living wage here with all of our employees when they enter in. And so that's the next big phase for us. What, What we... What we're going to do is we really believe that if we're going to truly protect women around the world that are making these products, um, which is the primary maker of these products in the fashion world, then what we've got to do is figure out a way to empower consumers to make a really easy and quick decision on a product that they're purchasing. Yeah. And we kind of feel like the easiest way to do that was if we just start flat out publishing the wages of all the people making our products. Wow. And and that's what we're going to do. Um, because, look, is that wildly transparent and even a little bit probably dangerous? Yeah. But I'm pretty sure I'm going to die someday. And so that's – so before then – why not? Let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens, you know? And, 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 and I think the dream for us is that, you know, if I say child labor to you right now, you and I both know, and, and your listeners know, well, that's awful. No way. That's, I would never buy from that brand. Yeah. But when child labor really got exposed with Nike in the nineties, nobody really knew what it was. I remember, I remember hearing and going like, well, I'm the lawns as a kid. And then all of a sudden you find out, oh, hold on. No, this is children working 14 hour days in a factory in Pakistan and China. No, 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 no. That's not good. Yeah. Um, And being paid peanuts, literally, um, you know, and so in order for us to protect that, you know, and, and what our dream is, is that in the same way that child labor is now something that nobody would even consider, wouldn't it be awesome in 10 to 15 years if our children say things like, oh, this brand doesn't publish their wages. Oh, they must be hiding something. I'm not Mm. buying from them. Mm. If if there was literally some kind of a nutritional facts that, that people could make their choices based on. So that's, that's where we're headed missionally, um, is is to start that, to start publishing our wages and hope, hopefully see a trend where, cause I'll I'll tell you, brands aren't going to become, come and run into us to, uh, to figure out how to publish their wages. But we hope that the consumers will demand that of their favorite brands. That is incredible. And that really does take this whole community, this whole mission, this whole movement of ethical fashion, purchasing with purpose, you know, fair trade goods, you know, sort of the the conscious consumerism, I guess, is like a you know, buzzword people like to throw around. That takes it to, as my pastor likes to say a lot, is a whole nother level. Like it just, yeah. because this is... I, I think it's incredible because it sets an incre- an, an, an entirely different type of precedent for other brands. And this is something that I, you know, I'm the I'm the the weirdo that my, my friends laugh at, my readers laugh at, but like I'm the weirdo who I email companies that they they don't share their impact or if they don't share how their their products are manufactured I email them and I ask them and um, there are brands that I used to shop from I used to be an incredibly huge fan of that I have emailed over 
and over and over again, and they won't get back to me. Cough, cough, Lily Pulitzer, cough, cough. Um, and I'm going to put them on blast for until they respond. And, yeah. you know, and I'm I'm like, it's just one of those things where I've written blog posts, I've posted on Instagram stories, I've posted on Facebook, I've written comments, I've called their corporate line. There are brands that have not responded to me. And that to me says a whole lot more like I would rather them just reply and say, you know what, we don't know. Then right. them ignore me because I know yeah. they've seen my comments. Like I've been bugging them for long enough. Like I know somebody there has seen it. And it's almost like not answering or not giving me any information is almost worse <laughs> because it just leaves it open to the imagination. And so, you know, but but then there are companies who, you know, some people might say, oh, well, that company manufactures in China. And so they automatically assume that this company is unethical and they're, you know, working in a sweatshop and yada, yada, yada. But I've emailed some pretty well-known brands and said, hey, you know what? I really like your style. I love how you do things. I'd love to know, you know, who made my clothes and how how are they made? Do you look into your factories? Yada, yada, yada. And I've had some pretty well-known companies respond and say, you know what? This is actually an area we've been working on. We visited these factories this year. They're doing these, these, this, this, and this to improve. You know, And so that's a company that, like, if they can give me that answer, that says mm. a whole lot more about them and that, that they are working to improve. And I'm like, this is information you should be sharing with your consumers. If, if you are really doing these these things that you say you're doing, you should publish that on your, on your website and – I say this a lot, too, on the podcast. I really feel like in the next, and you kind of said in 15 years, but I've been saying like in the next 5, 10, 15 years, I think we're going to see a similar movement in the purchasing of goods that we have seen in food in the last mm. 5 to 10 years. In the previous yeah, 5 to 10 years, you know, with food, everybody now is like farm to table. They want to know where their food is made. They want to know it's non-GMO, organic. They want to shop, you know, farmer's markets, things like that. And that has become a huge issue for people because it kind of got brought to the forefront with a lot of documentaries and people talking about the dangers of, you know, overly processed food and all that kind of stuff. And so you, you're even seeing like Campbell's Soup and some of these more well-known companies coming out with like transparent ingredient lists and and how they source their food and things like that. And then you have Chipotle that's like, we're going to go completely non-GMO and all that stuff. And now other companies are, are trying to catch up. And so I think we're going to see a similar movement in the fashion and, and goods industry that we've seen in food because it's already starting. And with the Rana Plaza complex disaster in 2013, that really kind of set it off. And now you have this whole like fashion revolution movement and and people kind of coming up and saying like I want to know who made my clothes I want to know that they were paid a fair wage or a living wage I want to know that they weren't made in a sweatshop you know I want to know that the impact that this company is having and people are changing their purchasing habits and money talks <laughs> and so when companies start to realize oh people aren't buying from us because they don't know how their stuff was made <laughs> you know they're going to now shop this other brand Companies right. are going to have to make changes. And so and, I, and, yeah. yeah. And and the question is, I think the big question is when you talk about the food movement and you look at, you know, there, there's always a mix in our hearts between altruism and selfishness. I mean, obviously a brand might decide to go all GMO free because they mean it like crazy. And also, 
holy mackerel, there's some really clear blue water for us to go make some money in here, right? Yep. And so the thing is with the fashion world that we suffer by is is how do you get a consumer though, like a general consumer? Because because right now it's kind of just the super responsible consumer. Mm-hmm. But how do you get a 17-year-old girl that's buying a T-shirt to want to buy one that costs $28 as opposed to two at H&M for 12 For sure. And, you know, and, and I think that's incumbent upon us as brands to communicate that message so simply and so clearly and so palatable because rightfully she's busy with her life. Right. I'm busy with my life. So how do we create it in a way and create education in a way that, that just makes it such an easy decision for her? You know, yeah. how do we... And, and that's how we landed on publishing wages is is there's not much that could be more in your face than saying, uh, you know, you can have confidence. This product, the person made it is is able to live a life, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think that has so th- to go with us as parents, too, and the way we raise our kids, like because even this is something my four year old, she'll be five in August, like. This is something she even knows that mommy talks about. And at her level, you know, on a very simple four, almost five-year-old level, she knows about, you know, artisans and she knows about the work that mommy's done in Kenya. And she knows about the importance of, you know, buying something that was made well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She totally, (laughs) she'll be like, mommy, I'm going shopping in my closet today, you know, or things like that, you know, because we talk about using the goods. (laughs) Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty adorable and also kind of embarrassing for me, but you know, (laughs) but it is something that like, I instill this in my kids at an early age and, you know, if we as parents also have these conversations with our kids on a simple level, then they are that next generation that in 10 to 15 years will become that 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 purchasing generation that that cares. Yeah, for sure. Agreed. Oh, my goodness. Now you preach. <laughs> yeah, I know. Now it's time for me to preach. All right. <laughs> I like it. Uh, Barrett, this has been like just such an amazing conversation. And I could honestly talk to you for another hour and a half. Um, but I do want to kind of transition a little bit here. But before we do that, um, I know that you have something really exciting coming up. And you have something pretty exciting for my listeners that's exclusive to the Business with Purpose podcast listeners. <laughs> That's right. Listen, I would love for you to, for your listeners and you to have an easy entry into coming to know our brand if you don't already. So I think, you know, we, we want you to see the quality of what we do. And we, we, we hardly ever run sales, but we love to do it through people like you, Molly. So I think um, if we just said Mo- the code is Molly and it's 20% off and maybe you could share with them the details of, later of exactly when to use it and how, yes. then that'd be great. But I would love to do that. That would be awesome. So for the listeners, I will have the information in the show notes and also here at the end of the show, all the details. But the code will be Molly for 20% off your first purchase. And if you've been following my blog for a while, you already know that I love Able because, um, let's see, my the bag I'm currently carrying is my Able tote bag. Uh, the, jeans I'm, the jeans I'm wearing today are my Able high-waisted jeans. Uh, Yay! The necklace I have. 
necklace I have around my neck is the bar, the customized bar letter necklace from Abel. So personalize it. Go get it. I know. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> I might be a small fan. So um, oh, good. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. I'm I'm happy to to enable my friends to purchase from. <laughs> Look, get it. Enable, enable, yep, able. I, heard I don't it. know. Yeah. There's a lot of Ables out there. I know. <laughs> Um, Well, this is also the portion of the show where we transition a little bit and I get to just ask you some fun get to know you questions so we can just get to know you a little bit more on a personal level. And as my listeners also know, this is the portion of the show where my husband, who is my executive producer, inserts a sound effect of his choosing to transition us to the get to know you portion. Oh, my gosh. I know. That is funny. It's, It's different every week. I appreciate it, but I told my wife I wouldn't drink tonight. Besides, I got a big day tomorrow. But you guys have a great time. A big day? You're doing what? Well, um, actually, pretty nice little Saturday. We're uh, we're gonna go to Home Depot. Yeah, buy some wallpaper. Maybe get some flooring. Stuff like that. Maybe Bed Bath and Beyond. I don't know. I don't know if we'll have enough time. So for the first question is, what was your favorite TV show to watch growing up? Oh, man. Michael J. Fox. What was the name of that show? Is it called Growing Pain? Gra- Growing Pain. No. No, not no, Growing no, no, no. Um, Where he was the little business guy. Oh. And, um, do you know what show I'm talking about? I do. Listeners, uh, help us. Or somebody the... IMBD this quick. But... I am... <laughs> There, there's there's a there was that show where he and Jason Bateman's sister was on it and oh, um, yeah. I always had a crush on the mom and <laughs> um, and I always wanted to be him I wanted to be a little business mogul oh. and, I, and I never became a business mogul but I am little family ties family ties family ties that was it oh, Alex P I Keaton love him still Alex P Keaton oh I man still love Alex were you a uh, did you by any chance watch Designated Survivor on ABC. I, I did not. Oh man, my husband and I were big designated survivor f- fans and it got canceled after two seasons. Pfft, whatever. That's uh, but yeah, Michael J. Fox had a uh, guest starring role in the last uh like six episodes of the season this year. So it was it was oh, interesting to love, see now him. I want to see it. He's it was interesting man. to see him like, you know, I mean, he's obviously he's doing well, but I mean, his Parkinson's is definitely still very evident and like they really like didn't address that in his role but I thought it was cool I don't know he played a kind of a jerk lawyer who was also kind of good I don't know it was it was oh a, it I was want a, to see it now it was now a really interesting it, character I love me some Michael J. Fox yeah he's awesome he's awesome um all right second question if you had to eat the same meal for dinner every night for the rest of your life what would it be guacamole guacamole yes parrot we can be friends <laughs> but but the twist on it is is I want to be able to put some green onions in it, like oh, really diced green onions, okay. cilantro, lemon juice, fresh garlic. You're home. I like it. I like it. Come are on you, over. Come now, on are you over. like a taco or a burrito person? Uh, somewhere, somewhere in Nashville, I'll be making you guacamole. Just come on over. I like it. Now, do you are, do you eat it with tacos or burritos, or both? Uh, I eat it sometimes with a spoon, <laughs> um, and sometimes with a nacho chip. I like but it. really, even the nacho chip is really just for the carrying of yeah. massive amounts of guacamole. Yeah, for sure. Any, anything is an additive. It's not, nothing else is substantive to the process of eating the guacamole. I love it. I love it. Um, okay, so my third question is, what is a dream that you have yet to achieve? I used to dream that I could fly. Uh. Um, is that what you mean? Yeah, no, that can um, totally be it. 
I, I used to dream that I could fly. It was this awesome dream, and I've never been able to accomplish that. Um, <laughs> I, and then I would wake up, you know. I grew up um, loving Superman, so I also have always wanted to fly. You know, I mean, as far as dreams to accomplish out, like, uh, like in the and not not while I'm in the middle of REM sleep. <laughs> um, you know, I don't want to sound. Um, I I have I have four daughters and a wife, and I am I am loving that. And that's awesome. Um, and I probably would have said before that 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 would have been my dream. Um, but I I have that family now. And, you know, even work has days that I love and are the greatest and most fulfilling things in the in the world. But it's also work. And sometimes it's really hard. Yeah. And sometimes things don't go easy or well. But, um, man, every time I come home and those girls come running into my arms, nothing else matters. Mm-hmm. And 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 it is it is a joy and a fulfillment that I can't um, I can't find at the office in the same way. Um, and that's just for me, right? Everybody has their different thing. I'm just, I'm naming that personally for myself. And so I don't, I don't, uh, the only dream would be the continued evolving deep relationship that I hope to have with my family members and that we build confidence in these young girls that, um, and, and, uh, and a peace, you know, that, that, that lives out in all their relationships and how they live their lives. Like that's, that's the joy. I mean, the dream is just to continue to watch them. Yeah. Um, every day, you know, I mean, cause who knows what tomorrow holds for sure. For sure. As a parent and as a wife, I love hearing that. That is awesome. <laughs> and I feel like you just kind of answered without me even having to ask it. My last question, which is for what are you most grateful for? Um, well, what if I just said something really weird like soccer? I now, like it. After that yeah, last yeah. part. Yeah, you can totally soccer, do that. I'm so grateful for soccer. <laughs> no, I mean, you got it. You got it right. That's that's the same as the last question. I mean, I'm, I, I just, I'm, I mean, I, I want to not live in the cliche of it, but find out how, what it really means to like every day, tie, you know, the, the arteries that connect my heart to my mind are totally unclogged and I'm just able to live in love and, and, you know, enjoy primarily first and foremost, my family. And then as I grow outside of that to my coworkers and my friends. And so, um, yeah, it starts, it starts at home for sure. I think it's awesome. Barrett, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for taking your time and coming on the show. Isn't Barrett the man? That dude is so awesome. And the fact that Abel is going to be publishing their wages, this is incredible. They are really, really paving the way for other purpose-filled companies to step up the game. Now, don't forget to use that code MOLLY, M-O-L-L-Y, for 20% off your first purchase from Able. Go to stillbeingmolly.com slash Able to shop. I'll have all the links and information in the show notes. And another huge thank you to this week's podcast sponsor, Causebox. Don't forget, go to stillbeingmolly.com slash Causebox and use that code MOLLY for $15 off. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. If you're a first-time listener of the show, welcome. Be sure to visit the archives for past shows featuring amazing entrepreneurs and business owners who are quite literally changing the world with their businesses. And if you are a regular listener of the show, thank you so much for tuning in week in and week out, and thank you for your support. Be sure to head on over to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Radio Public, or whichever podcasting app you like best, and make sure you're subscribed to the show. 
Clicking that subscribe button helps to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, would you just take a moment to leave a review of the show? Leaving a review helps me to know exactly what you're liking and how this show is personally impacting you. And if you share the show on social media, be sure to use the hashtag Business with Purpose Podcast or tag me at Still Being Molly on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. The show is edited by my amazing husband, as y'all know, and executive producer John Stillman, and the music is by Mark Killian of Third Wheel Media. Thank you so much for listening. Now go do something good with purpose on purpose. Purpose.